0: Welcome to the Suicide Prevention and Awareness Podcast, part of CBP's Shine-A-Light Suicide Prevention Program. Today we are talking with Chaplain Will and Dr. Kent Corsell, a clinical psychologist specializing in suicide prevention. In this episode, Chaplain Will discusses his transition from the military to civilian life and how he overcame thoughts of suicide. Hi and welcome to our monthly podcast. Thanks so much for joining us today and to our guest for being with us. Just a few caveats before we get going. I am a clinical psychologist, so I am a doctor, but I'm not the doctor for our guest. This isn't therapy or counseling, nor is anything we talk about today going to involve or constitute medical advice. This is just a conversation. Another disclaimer is that suicide is a difficult topic to talk about. It's not one that we can discuss vaguely or indirectly if we hope to make a difference. So for our listeners out there, we are going to have a frank conversation today. If by any chance you have lived experience or you are triggered, if anything we discuss is upsetting or distressing to you, please reach out for help. Reach out to those who care for you and love you and reach out to those who you love. If you're a CBP employee or family member and you need help, you can always contact a peer support member, chaplain, or veteran support member, or you can reach out to our employee assistance program. If you are not a CDP employee, you can always call 1-800-273-8255, which is the National Suicide Lifeline. This month, our Suicide Prevention Podcast is focused on military veteran suicide in honor of Veterans Day. With us today, we are joined by Chaplain Will. Welcome, Chaplain Will. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. When you and I first started discussing military suicide, Will, you made it clear that you see many people as a chaplain within CBP, many people who are struggling with suicide. Many are military veterans, but so are not. You also have some lived experience with suicidal uh, thoughts, and so I thought maybe we could spend a little time talking about that today. How does that sound? That sounds good. Let's get to it. Great so why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, your background? I understand you were Army I was I was started off as a personal security and then found my way
1: to working with a k nine and that's how I ended my time in the United States Army. Excellent.
0: and coming out of the Army, you went straight into CBP. What was the transition like for you? Y- you know the transition it was a blur. Uh, there
1: was I only had about a month and a half between the last day as a soldier. And the first day as an agent, uh, with so much going on, you have people yelling at you, telling you what to do, when to do it, and how to do it. Uh, it was it actually felt comfortable for me i I enjoyed the the structure. The issues that came up from my time in the military weren't they weren't prevalent. they weren't they were on the back burner because of everything I had going on. So it sounds
0: like what you're saying is you had some issues that were left over from your time in the military, but as you entered CBP during your transition, you were so busy, maybe even distracted by everything going on, that the issues seemed to just fade into the background.
1: Correct. Uh, I wasn't avoiding issues. Uh, you know, I, I I was dealing with survivor's guilt, though I didn't know it, and I had uh, post-traumatic stress from certain events that I. I didn't have time to to delve into, and there was uh, there was the ray of sunshine that uh, I, I was okay. What do you mean there was the ray of sunshine that you were okay? Tell us more about that. Sure, it's it's that it's that belief that uh, I'm okay, that I can do whatever I'm doing, and I don't need help. I I knew about PTS. I, I knew about other soldiers, uh, friends of mine, who were going through those kind of things, but I felt okay. Well, I'm okay. I'm going to work.
0: I'm going to classes. I'm working out. Uh, I'm studying for the next exam. At- so you had a lot going for you. You you were looking forward to this new chapter in your life. And so you were kind of on a high. Is that a fair statement? Yes. Okay. And did, is that how it progressed? It just, you kind of kept going high and, and here we are today, several years later? No, I, I had definitely had my lows. Uh, that, those didn't come about until after the
1: academy when I went to my duty station immediately the the noise immediately settled, and I was just me. and that's when the that's when the internal battles came. I had a very difficult time because i I didn't I couldn't recognize what I was going through. And I feared that whatever I was going through was going to either ostracize me or get me fired from this job that which I was still in probation of.
0: and so when you say stuff you were going through, this is stuff left over from your time in the army, correct? Correct. Just to list them, uh, there was the survivor's
1: guilt. There was the post tra- uh, trauma that manifested in anger. I, I got to a point, and this happened, and this went over years of, in, in the time span. I got used to being angry all the time. Uh, I felt more comfortable in anger than I did in anything else. And it was, there was a little confusion there because a lot of it was just depression. But uh, anger was the motivator for me to get up out of bed, to go do what I had to do. It got to a point where I felt I was smarter, faster. I was more effective when I was angry.
0: I'd be willing to bet that there are some people within CBP who feel that way every day, both angry about things, but also feeling like that's what keeps them motivated. It, it It is a common factor when you're dealing with the type of personalities that
1: in the first place sign up to put a gun on their hip, a, a shield on their chest and put their lives in in jeopardy or, you know, between the bad
0: guy and the, the victim. And so is that clearly you don't sound angry today. So can you tell us a little bit about how that played out over the last several years? Sure. So, you know, we, we just touched on the, the anger and the depression
1: when my family, when my spouse. And children came. I put them through a lot. They lived on eggshells when I was awake or at home. It got to the point where they, they looked forward to daddy going to work or daddy going to sleep while he worked at midnights. I got to the point where I, I could see the damage I was doing to my relationship with my wife and the fear that I was instilling in my children
0: who were just babies at the time. So you were taking a lot of the anger out on your family? I was, verbally and emotionally. Okay. And so even though you felt like the anger was a good motivator for you to do your job and you were sort of faster, better, sharper than the people to your left and right, it was taking a toll on your family life.
1: And I I couldn't take it. I couldn't turn it off. And so what I did was I isolated myself from everybody at work. And I couldn't do that at home. Instead, I was faced with what with the consequences of my actions and i could recognize the monster i was becoming to my children and the enemy i was to my relationship with my wife and that culminated in one day there uh, i had a really big fight with my wife she took the kids to see family up north afterwards just to give us a break and at at the time and being alone was not ideal for me. Uh, being alone meant that I, I didn't have any outlet. I, I, I was forced to look at the mirror and see what I was. And I didn't like it. I thought that I didn't, I wasn't deserving of any love. Uh, and that was one of the reasons I, I grew to be angry at my wife so much was that how could a person love me the way she did? And so I, I began to distrust her like, I began to hate her for loving me and, and that, that manifested in pushing her away uh, to the point where one night, that, one of the nights that she, was, she and the kids were gone, I sat down on the floor against my bed and I took my service weapon and held it in my hand with a finger on the trigger. Uh, as I was pointing it to my head, my wife called me and this was about 10 o'clock at night. So she, she should have been asleep. Um, but she had the desire to call me and that was my saving grace. That was, that was God.
0: Um, that was God saving me. Chaplain, Will, this is uh, pretty intense and pretty personal. Can I slow it down for a bit and just go back? Sure. It sounds like what you're saying is you were aware that you could no longer sort of what I would say, shift gears. You were able to be decisive, stern, sharp and effective at work, and you felt like a lot of that was driven by anger, but then when you went home, you carried lots of that anger with you, and that was not helpful in the home environment, especially toward your wife. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. Sometimes when we think about the kind of stress that we come in contact with every day, and certainly that agents do, and officers and other types of employees, because we have a diversity of employees within our agency, When we think about the stress, sometimes we don't think about it in terms of shifting gears, driving a different speed limit, being adaptable. But that's really what we're talking about here is what is effective in one context or one setting may not be the recipe for success in another, right? Right. And in fact, the anger became so great at home that you even recognized that I am not treating my wife well, and the fact that she loves me in spite of it makes me feel horrible about myself.
1: That's exactly right. It was making it worse. It was compounding
0: whatever was go- whatever turmoil I had inside me. And that's and that's so interesting because most people would think, well, a significant other, a partner, a husband, a wife, they'll just get fed up dealing with it and walk away. But in in your case, what you're saying is she was so understanding and loving. That that made you hate yourself for doing that to her. Is that right?
1: That's right. It, her, her set of values that she clung to, to keep her in the fight. And it was a fight to keep us together. You know, we look at, we look back on it together today and she brings to light that it was her, it was her faith in, in God and the vows that she took that kept her here. The vows of in sickness and in health. And it was her and not me who initially saw what I was going through as a mental um, injury, as what we call invisible wounds and um, in dealing with, the- with mental issues, uh, dealing with therapy. She was the first to acknowledge that, that it was similar to, say, if I had lost a leg in battle, my, my trauma and my
0: guilt for being alive when when my friends weren't. So what gave her the ability to be so empathic, so understanding, so loving, was that she clearly recognized and accepted your survivor's guilt, some of your uh, post-traumatic stress, as legitimate, bona fide injuries, no different than someone who had maybe lost a leg in combat. Correct. And then this all culminated in you putting your firearm, your... Government issued firearm to your head. And just as you were about to pull the trigger, she called. Yes. And
1: that was, I still look on that day and I can't help but tear up because we're talking about, we're talking about seconds where had she called just a few seconds later, there would,
0: there would be no one to answer the phone. Right. And you, and you truly credit. God as the, the force that allowed that timing to happen in such a way that saved you. A hundred percent. Okay. And then you, you mentioned that you talk with many people in our organization and they're, they're suicidal. Some of them are suicidal. How has this experience impacted you as a chaplain? And were you a chaplain then, by the way? No, no, I, I, I wasn't even peer support at the time. Uh, I I didn't even know about those programs till well after. And do you share with people when you're talking to them that you had struggled with suicide yourself? Uh, not if it takes away from their pain.
1: Uh, when I sit down or walk alongside people who are suffering or who are in pain, the last thing I want to do is put the the focus on me. And so if I do tell the story, it's well after, or maybe they heard it before, during a veterans event that I you know put on, I, I am very free about telling my story. And it's because I know that there are others out there who are suffering in secret, who are, who are chained to the darkness by guilt and shame. And I, I want to reach out to them and let them know that, that there's another way, that there's someone who,
0: who knows what you're going through and in that you're not alone. And so... By offering that help, it sounds like you try to let them know that they're not the only ones suffering, but at the same time, you don't lead with, and let me tell you about my story, but instead you do lots of listening. Am I understanding you? Yes. About 90% of a chaplain's work is done listening.
1: That's it. And that goes with peer support as well. Yeah, it's it's about listening to them and have given them an outlet. Where it, the conversation can be confidential. I don't take notes. I don't gossip. I, I know that pain and I, I'm comfortable sharing my story. I do not push that on other people, especially if they're still going through it. I, I'm very thankful and I understand how blessed I am to have made it out of that darkness to the end of the road and still be here. And I know that I know that there are other people who are still walking, still trying to find their way. And I, I would not want to push that on them, and I would not want to take away from them by sharing my story if it's
0: not appropriate. Sure. So you that makes good sense. You keep the focus on them and because it's about them, and then if there's any benefit, either at a later date or maybe uh, they hear about it, they might learn about your story. In fact, there is a video that was done about your story. Is that correct?
1: Uh, yes. Uh, a great friend came to me, After, I believe he attended one of my veteran events and I'm not sure what enticed him, but he wanted to make a video about my, my walk with suicide. And it was overall, it was about two and a half hours of sitting down and him asking me questions, just
0: like you are walking me through this. Great. And we've included a a description and a link to that video where this podcast is posted Chaplain Will, one of the things that we wanted to focus on, in addition to your personal experience with suicide, is how this pertains to military veterans and their struggles with suicide, survivor's guilt, PTS. What's your view of uh, military veteran suicide and why it's happening? They say that 22 veterans die by suicide every day. So what would you say? the reasons are for that what's your understanding of it
1: you know i I, i'd want to i'd like to say that it's unique to everyone but from what i've experienced as a chaplain serving veterans in the border patrol uh serving outside of our agency is that there are some commonalities there is that sense of alone aloneness where it's just me and no one would understand and nothing could be farther from the truth but when you're in that place you know you can talk yourself into any reality and i think that's one of the issues i, I also believe that relationship has a big part to deal with it when i was in the army uh, i lived in barracks i slept ate and and fought with uh, my brothers in uniform being in the civilian world we just don't have that it, it takes your purposeful your intentional handiwork to create that environment for yourself and so many are like me where I just didn't do that. I, I didn't know what to expect, but the reality was that I was, I was alone, surrounded by a, a culture where as soon as you were done with your shift, you clocked out and you went home and never to be seen again till the next day at work. That wasn't something I was used to and it's not what
0: I grew to depend on. I like how you said that it's not what you grew to depend on. Many times when people transition from... Mm-hmm life in the military to the civilian world, it's a bit of a jarring experience. Two of the things that I've noticed that relate to suicide and put veterans at higher risk are that within the military, we have to encounter lots of hardship. I'm a a military veteran myself. We encounter difficult things, and in order to perform at our best, we rely on a team. And and the people to our left and our right, our brothers and sisters in arms, those are the people who help us get through difficult times. And I don't mean difficult times like a divorce, obviously those, but just carrying out the mission day to day can be, especially in a deployed environment, can be incredibly taxing and draining. Of course, without a mission, without a higher purpose or reason to be going through all the difficult things, you wouldn't need someone to your right and left. So at the end of the day, military veterans learn to pursue a mission that helps them be strong and resilient and uh, persistent at trying to achieve that mission. And they're able to tolerate and, and manage and overcome hardship because they have their unit or their support system also in uniform. Would you say in your experience that that is true, that when people come out of the military, two things that may contribute to their suicidal thoughts and feelings are lack of mission and lack of unit.
1: I think those are big parts of it. I really do. There are secondary issues, but nothing hits the veteran harder, what they grew to depend on, what they grew to learn as a survival tool, you know, to disappear. The other issues, of course, are that at the time I was going through this, I didn't know about EAP. I didn't know about the free therapy that's provided through EAP. I didn't know about the peer support program or the chaplaincy program. And that's not to say they weren't around. And a lot of it had a lot of it. I have to own up to when I isolated myself, when I pushed myself away from everybody, I, I wasn't thinking that I could be fixed. I thought that what I was going through was something I was just going to have to deal with, like a, a broken a broken bone or a scar that this is just my life. Now there, there's a lot to be done, but I, at the same time, I don't want to take away m- my own accountability and responsibility. I, I should have done, I should have done better. I should have, I should have seen the value and in, in being a better man for my, for my wife and a better father for my children. And had that motivate me. But, you know, at the time I was so engulfed with my own pain that uh, I I just couldn't see
0: past past all of that. I think what you say has so much importance. What you're saying there, Chaplain Will, is that your reason for getting help, your reason for getting help was to be a better father, a better husband. It wasn't about strong or weak. It wasn't about any other reason than to be a better person to them and that's so important because many people hesitate to get help whether they're veterans or not i think the veterans have this value that we're supposed to suck it up and press on and unless you're literally bleeding out keep going and let someone else get help but i'm tough i'm strong i can do it and that's really not what getting help is about at all it's not about strong or weak it's about being the person who you value and and aligning your choices, your decisions, and your actions with your values. And your value was around being a a good father and a good partner to your wife.
1: Right. Going back to to my thoughts at the end uh, there with with the gun, it, it was not seeing that. It was talking myself into thinking that my family would be better off if I wasn't
0: around, that they'd be safer. They'd be safer. Yeah, that's right. There's this common faulty thinking that we're a burden to our family and that they'd be better off without us. And when we talk to families who have survived the death of a loved one, the suicide of a loved one, they say that's the farthest thing from the truth. And it sounds like you fortunately realized that on your own.
1: Not on my own. I, I, I My wife was there. Um, and because of her, I was, I was I'll say, forced to, to seek help and to, to be more open with what I was going through. And I'll I'll say this about seeking help. Every 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 person I believe who's in in the chair of therapy or chaplaincy or peer support, I believe they are intentional about serving and and have the heart to care for people. But they're not always the right fit for you. I, I know agents who will call me instead of the chaplains at their station because they're not comfortable uh, seeking help from the people they know. Uh, I myself
0: went through a couple of therapists before I I found the right one. Absolutely, just just like plumbers or carpenters or heck, even teachers. Right? I mean, just just because someone does a specialty doesn't mean that they do it well. It doesn't mean that it's a good fit with you. There's a certain amount of chemistry. It has to work. Well, I appreciate you joining us today, Chaplain Will, and talking about this deeply personal but important topic especially in light of Veterans Day. Any last words for veterans within CBP who might be struggling with suicidal thoughts or suicidal feelings? I would just like them to know that they're not alone. And I would like to acknowledge that
1: their spouses and their children uh, are suffering just as much. I know for one that I I want to do what I can to serve not just the veteran, but the veteran family. No one's immune to the pain uh, when it comes to those who love you. And there is help. There are resources available. You just have to take the step towards them. But I promise you, if you take that step, there will be people who want to walk alongside you, who want to get you moving, who want
0: to help you uh, find your way out. What a great message, Chaplain Will. Thank you. This is part of our ongoing podcast series for suicide prevention and awareness. If you see someone struggling, say something. Asking them about suicidal thoughts may feel awkward, but you can help reduce suicide risk at home and in the workplace by tolerating that awkwardness. Simply ask, how can I help? And then just listen to the person. Make sure you ask them if they're thinking of ending their life. It really does make a difference. Thank you again to our guests. I really appreciate you. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in. We'll speak to you again on our next episode.